too much, too much action. More energy. Work. Too much footwork. We broke you. We're recording, by the way. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Oh well, uh, I want to start off by saying Riley has this new Whamadyne microphone mm, filter, wow. so she's gonna sound wonderful. And my throat feels like trash today. <laughs> so not only do I not have a filter, I have like a scratchy. It's gonna sound like I smoke like a pack a day. I mean, and Riley's I need just to gonna talk to you about that. Riley's just gonna sound great. So that's how we're starting. <laughs> I mean, it is that rock concert that you went last night. Yeah, it was in my sleep. I went to a concert. <laughs> God. I don't know. I just woke up and, like, feels like I was just screaming all night. Maybe I snored last night or something. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I just feel like trash from my own choices. <laughs> we, are done with the, we are done with the classes, though. We're done. As we of, just, like, a half hour ago. Yeah, we just had our... Final presentation. I mean, I guess we have kind of a silly presentation this afternoon, but yeah, no, we, we've done the, the meat of it. I think we can confidently say that was the best group that we've worked with in this program so far. A hundred percent. They rocked. A hundred It was you and I, and then we had three undergrads, and they are all monument, just wildly smarter than we are. For sure. But somehow we were, we were the leaders of the project. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was wonderful. So aside from feeling like shit, how's it going? Good. Good. Yep. For the most part. Good. Same. Thanks for asking. <laughs> I was going to ask about your, because you fly out next week. I do. I do fly out on Wednesday. Went out to Boston. And what's the first thing you're doing? I guess it's the day after, so it's not yeah, necessarily the first thing. I was going to say, the first thing I'm doing is going home and probably taking a nap. But uh, second day, I'm uh, expanding my current tattoo that I have on my arm. Some skin tapestry. Some skin tapestry. So, yeah, that'll be fun. Nice. I love it. Yeah, my tattoo artist is a very good friend out in Boston, so it'll be good to catch up with him. So, yeah. Love it. I... I am going to get way more tattoos. might turn out to be a problem, but... No, it's not. We've talked about this. Oh, it's, it's not just a problem. A, it's a collection. It's a collection. That's what I tell myself when I buy new shoes, like <laughs> I did, what, two days ago? I thought you say you, uh, what is it, you rescue... I do, Rescue yes. the babies? Yes. It's, you know, it's a tough job. Somebody's got to do it. Give them a nice home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a related... Uh, note on last week's podcast. So we talked about the, you know, diet love, diet love, diet love, diet love <laughs> path. Um, you choose whichever you like best. Um, I saw a story in the New York Times, but uh, you know what? No, I saw a headline in the New York Times oh. that a camera was discovered as a glacier was eroding. I forget what country it was in. And this camera was from a mountain expedition like 30 years ago where the hikers died. And it's been this big mystery ever since then of like this disappearance of the hikers. And so they're hoping that this camera, which belonged to one of these hikers, can shed some light on what happened. You're going to laugh at the first two things that I think of when they when they open up Colin Creevy's camera to see if he got a picture of his attacker 
and then I. For those of yeah. you who are less well versed in Harry Potter, that's a that's a Harry Potter. Reference. And I'm honestly, and I'm not even going to bring up the second one because it's making a, it's going to make me look even nerdier. So I'm going to no, stick with that no, one. Just go for it. Where they could tell the last the last spell that they cast on their wand. Just like check the last picture they took. Oh my god, I've lost it. Yeah, I'm not sure you ever had it. But saw that a few days after we recorded the last podcast and I was like, "Ooh, this could be interesting." So I'll I'll follow up next time with more information. The hot goss. The tea. The scoop. The scoop. Yeah. Do you want question or story next? Let's do story. Story? Yeah. Okay. Well, I said last time I was going to do an alien story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did find one. It's actually a pretty well-known story, so people might have already heard of it. It's been covered on a couple other podcasts. If you just search up famous abduction stories, it's, it's kind of on a lot of different sites. But I think... It's an abduction story. It is an abduction story. So it's potentially the most famous, believable, and miraculous alien abduction story that's ever been recorded. Ooh. Yeah. So it's the story of Barney and Betty Hill. Barney and Betty. Barney and Betty. Super cute. It's been transcribed into books and even made into a movie starring James Earl Jones. It was called The UFO Incident. The Hill story changed the way that people saw UFO encounters. Before their story, people saw alien encounters as being like something that's kind of silly or like a dreamlike vision of little green men. And afterwards, their story added an element of some horror, mystery, and helplessness. Ooh. People feared then having encounters with beings that were now seen as larger or more powerful than them or smarter to the point where they had vastly more technologically advanced, um, you know, spacecraft and, you know, maybe tools or weapons. Uh, so this led to kind of a darker stories of some forced medical experimentation or like forgetting large periods of time. So it kind of shifted the way people thought of alien abductions. The story begins when Barney and Betty Hill, some of, some of the accounts that I found have that they had their dog with them. Oh. So they have a dog in the what car. What kind of dog? It did not say. I knew you would ask. It didn't say. <laughs> some accounts said they had their dog with them. Some accounts did not. But Barney and Betty Hill, they take a spontaneous road trip in New Hampshire in the fall of 1961. They had been married just over a year, but due to Barney's work and his busy schedule, they had been prevented from taking their honeymoon. Barney worked the late night shift at the post office while Betty handled child welfare cases for the state. Goodness. Their road trip consisted of a drive up to Niagara Falls from their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which, side note, Portsmouth, New Hampshire is wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's like a busy little town, but it's right on the water. It's very pretty, amazing food, great seafood. The seafood there is, is you can get it like straight from catch of the day. But it's a very cute little town. Lived there for a very short while, but I loved it. On the last night of their trip, the couple got lost when they were attempting to take in a show for the evening. They found themselves far enough away from town, and it was getting late enough that they decided to try and find a hotel for the night rather than keep wandering around in the dark and trying to find where they were going. However, they couldn't find a dog, or sorry, they couldn't find a hotel that would allow a dog, and at this point it was getting later and later. Finally, the two of them just decided, it's the last night of our trip, we're going to make the drive home, we're just going to drive into the night. They planned on driving till approximately 2 or 3 in the morning uh, when they would reach home. Yeah, that'd be rough. I feel like you just find a hotel and you just kind of sneak the dog in. Right. 
yeah, but uh, so that's that's where one of the accounts helps that they have the dog is they couldn't find a hotel that would take one. Other accounts are they were just hopelessly lost and decided to kind of mm. make their way home. They're on the way home now. It is it is at night as they're driving. Betty noticed a particular bright star and bright enough that it was like large enough to be a planet, something that was moving in a sort of erratic manner. Betty was a bit more excitable than Barney, so she immediately began claiming that it was a UFO. She went straight to UFO. I think you mean UFO. Oh, sorry, UFO. Yep. Yeah. There was no pronunciation next to uh, UFO, so I, yeah, it can be hard I've just been going with UFO. Barney, however, a bit more level-headed and skeptical. However, the bright object did keep moving forward, flying erratically, and even appeared to change altitude. Oh. As their car approached the bright object, Barney decided to pull over and get out for a better look. Barney stopped the car and got out, carrying a revolver with him as he did. Later, Barney would describe the object as a pancake-like disc glowing with brilliant white light. He looked at it with a pair of binoculars and remembers seeing figures looking out the window all lined up as if they were looking back at him. I love the concept of seeing a really bright light and being like, you know what I should do? I should grab my binoculars mm -hmm. and just really magnify that. That'll be good for my uh, retinas. But he does see, like, basically figures in the window looking back at them. This okay. is Okay, wait. Yep. It's a pancake-shaped object? Think of, like, a classic UFO-looking disc flying object. Okay. I don't understand where the windows would be. Um... We, so they, they actually each, this is jumping ahead a little bit, Barney and Betty each drew what they remember seeing mm -hmm. later on, and they each draw the same thing. Ooh. Um, but to think of like a very classic UFO disc shape, but there's, it's like tall enough that there's space for windows. Gotcha. I see the issue with a pancake having windows. <laughs> well, I know like the yeah. classic UFO shape, it's yep. like the pancake shape, and then in the middle, there's kind of the cockpit area. Yeah. Yep. Think of... Uh, Maybe just the cockpit area has windows okay. and people are looking back. I do see the hang-up on, on something thin not having windows. <laughs> okay. So this is where a few of the accounts start to differ. Some of the accounts claim that as Barney and Betty attempted to get back in the car and leave, they were just suddenly overcome with intense drowsiness and both lost consciousness. Other accounts claim that they consciously drove further down the road with the flying object above them and following them, feeling intense vibrating and loud humming noises until they were forced to stop. There are even accounts that Barney witnessed his wife willingly board the UFO and that he followed her to ensure her safety. However, each account seems to agree that the next thing that both of them remembered was pulling into their driveway in the morning hours later. Except that they were supposed to arrive, remember, around 2 or 3 a.m., mm -hmm. but when they pull into their driveway, the sun is up. Oh, a little time goes on, and the two hills are still in shock and disbelief about what's happened to them. So we're, we're skipping over what they remember of mm -hmm. the abduction for right now. So it seems like there's some kind of like time glitch, there like a glitch is. in the Matrix. There is, absolutely. But we're going to come back to what they sort of, what comes back to their memory later. Okay. So they're still in shock and disbelief about what's happened. Betty is like 100% convinced she knows what happened. Barney agrees that what happened was real and what they saw actually happened to them, but he's skeptical about what to do next. 
Barney believes that their experience is too incredible for anyone to ever believe them, and he's worried that if they publicly tell people, it'll affect their professions and their reputations. Mm. It's important to note here that the two of them are both highly active in the civil rights movement, and anything that would sort of paint them as uh, crazy would threaten their credibility. Barney agrees to let Betty tell her sister, who she is very close with, so Betty confides in her sister. However, Betty's sister did not keep it a secret. Come on. Yep. So she confided to her. Betty's sister does not keep it a secret. She mentions it to her neighbor at, like, a dinner party, just <laughs> casually. And eventually, the people she's talking to, there are some accounts of who they are. It gets into some, some details about what they did as their professions, but eventually gets reported to the nearby Air Force Base. The case makes it to one Major Henderson of the U.S. Air Force. He files a report with Project Blue Book, which, oh, yeah. ooh, are you familiar? <laughs> are you familiar? <laughs> yeah, maybe what do you got? Bit. No, isn't Project Blue Book the government's, I mean, it wasn't really known at the time, but since declassified their investigation into UFOs during this time. Yes, that's the crux of it. So it was a government-funded agency, and their sole purpose, they were mainly housed within the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Their sole purpose was to either validate or debunk potentially terrestrial, or sorry, extraterrestrial or paranormal activities. You are right that they did not officially exist at the time. It was just kind of like it would be reported to the Air Force. And then within the Air Force was Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book was actually the third or fourth iteration of something like this occurring. But through various funding and politics, some of the projects stopped and then were recreated under a different name with different funding. Blue Book specifically existed from 1952 to 1969. Nice. At the time of its termination, the project had collected over 12,000 UFO reports and concluded that most of them were just misidentifications of common phenomena like weather or conventional aircraft. Unfortunately for this story, There's no real conclusion about where the report went or what happened with the investigation for Barney and Betty. So it does go to Project Blue Book, but there's really no outcome that's publicly known from what they determined. I am so curious about, like, the trajectory of this story. Like, got told to the sister. Okay, fine. Sister tells it to somebody at a dinner party, and then all of a sudden they're like, you know where this needs to go? This needs to go to the Air Force. So getting into a little bit of those details, because you're right, the sister was at a dinner party, and one of her guests was a like notable physicist from the university. Ah. So the physicist is like, no, this is, not, this is not dumb. The things that they're talking about at least sound somewhat credible. And the physicist, who maybe was more connected, is the one, I think, that took it to the Air Force. And said, like, I have connections with the government. This is where this information should go. I mean, who knows? He could be somebody that was working on Project Blue Book. And I think think the sister also felt some level of comfort confiding in, like, you know, I don't know what kind of physics he practiced, but maybe she thinks, like, okay, this is a smart, you know, science-based scholar that could either say, like, no, this is crazy, or know what to do with it. So the accounts on that aren't super specific, but that's kind of what, how that happened, how it, no no one just walked onto the Air Force Base and, like, I have a UFO story. So Betty started then, this is like a few weeks later, Betty starts having like nightmarish dreams and vivid flashbacks, and she just like can't get away from them. She was still convinced that it was a UFO, 
but really didn't know what to do about it. She began doing her own research at the local library and came across a civilian group called NICAP, which is the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena. You're nodding like you know this one too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've, uh, you're familiar? <laughs> this shouldn't surprise you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Tell me you're a part of NICAP. Oh my God, that'd be great. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> um, the, so the, this NICAP, this committee, Betty wrote to them and told them about her account of, of what happened. She gave them the entire story of what she remembers. She asked if she, they've ever heard of anything like this, and then essentially what she should do about it. The letter resulted in a NICAP member coming to meet with them and record their story and get the full account from both of them of what happened. So both Betty and Barney were convinced of what they saw before losing consciousness, but in their account, what they're really concerned with is that missing chunk of time, those missing hours where they can't remember and they can't account for what happened. Mm -hmm. So now the report is with NICAP. It's basically being led by the civilian group, which to be completely honest, sounds like a like nerdy civilian group of retired military folks who spend all their free time chasing down UFO stories, but I can't blame them. However, one of the NICAP members was former military intelligence as an interrogator, so he got excited about the part where they can't remember what happened to them. And as an interrogator, he's like, well, I get information that people don't remember all the time. So he focused on that part, and eventually the efforts with NICAP lead to the Hills being paired up with a psychiatrist, Dr. Benjamin Simon, who is a specialist in hypnosis. Yep. There it is. You saw that where that was going? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So after a couple weeks of hypnosis with Dr. Simon, he's established kind of a baseline with Betty and Barney. They start getting into the hypnosis sessions where they go into the experience. They start reliving it. He puts them back in that scenario and in the situation not to remember it, but to actually, like, relive it. Yeah. Do you um, believe in hypnosis? I do. And then from everything that I found researching this, this is not what you'd think of as, like, a theatrical hypnosis. Mm -hmm. This is not, like, making your friends do something silly. Yeah. This is not uh, making them, you know, act like an animal or something. Yeah. like. This is putting them into a trance-like state where... They think that they are physically somewhere else, yeah. and they're reliving something that's in their subconscious. So what, they, what he's doing with Betty and Barney is putting them back in the scenario where they actually think and feel that they are back in the car, and they're tapping into like memories that are maybe not at the surface of their brain yeah. and, and getting into something deeper. So to answer your question, yes, I absolutely believe that something like this exists. And you'll see, like I think the evidence for it is very hard to deny, and you'll see... Yeah just pretty clear examples of that when he does it with these two. Yeah, but. you see this quite a bit in stories like this, but you also see it in true crime stories. And the way that I've heard it described is like hypnosis in this sense is you're essentially put in this very, uh, not even sure, like suggestible state, but not in a malicious way. It's essentially saying like, it is now this day, you are in this place. So that like, your brain is basically taking you back there and hopefully like thinking that you're back in that place brings up some of those memories that, you know, maybe repressed or, or whatever. I think it's just super interesting. I don't think it's always accurate or 
whatever, but, you know, it's interesting in cases like this. Well, I've heard of it coming up in, like, trauma cases, mm-hmm. too. I think we've talked about, like, capital T trauma mm-hmm. before, but, like, sometimes the brain just, like, chooses to forget things that yep. were so traumatic for it or that just, like, instantly scarred it that some there's some therapy methods that will have you relive that moment and get into what your brain has chosen to forget. Yeah. I mean, that, and I don't even think you need to, like, ever be hypnotized to to have this happen to you. I mean, this happens to me frequently and it's sometimes it's in therapy and sometimes mm-hmm. it's it's not, but you know, you kind of get this very vivid memory back from something that, you know, happened maybe 20 years ago and it's like where has that been living in my brain? Yeah. So I think, you know, my perception of hypnosis is that it puts you in that state where you're much more able to sort of draw those memories out. I think suggestible was a good good description of it. Okay, so they're, they've gotten their baseline done. They start getting into reliving the experience. It is important to note that the two individuals are doing separate hypnosis sessions yep. in separate rooms that are soundproof. So both of these recollections and the reliving of the experiences are happening separately. Yep. When starting to recollect the event, Barney actually completely freaks out. He's supposed to be in like a calm, trance-like state where he's just like quietly responding to the doctor. And as he is driving down the road and, and the, the one account where the UFO is like flying over them, mm-hmm. he loses it in his hypnosis session. He's talking about he was trying to stay calm. Like I remember I told you about Betty thought it was a UFO right away mm-hmm. and Barney was, was skeptical. In reality, Barney was terrified mm-hmm. and he was trying to just like stay calm for Betty's sake and yep. just kind of be just calm and in charge Uh, but in the account he was actually very scared during the remainder of his session barney recalled creatures with slanted eyes bringing them aboard the ufo and communicating to him specifically with their eyes so you can kind of think of like telepathically Mm -hmm. that he could remain calm and that they wouldn't be harmed at this same point in the story in betty's session she remembers figures leading barney into the craft and then coming back for her so she like waited at the car and then they came back for her. She says that the beings had put Barney under some type of control and that it seemed like he could not resist what they wanted him to do. For this reason, she thought that they were taking Barney in sort of a malicious way, mm-hmm. like kind of like mind control. So she puts up a little bit of a fight. And getting on board, she actually rips her dress. And she notes that when she got home, but her dress was ripped as she got on board this, this mm-hmm. UFO because she kind of struggled as they brought her on. Here's where. It's, like, scary how much the accounts match up. So keep in mind, they're in separate rooms. Were they doing this simultaneously, or...? He put them under... They would come in for the session together, Mm -hmm. but they're in separate rooms, and he would put them under, and one would kind of, like, wait for the other one. Gotcha. Because he couldn't do both of them at once, and he wouldn't switch back and forth. But, like, once they're in a trance-like state, it was almost like they were sleeping and, like, Mm -hmm. waiting for the doctor to come back and keep going. It's, like, a very, like, deep relaxation. Yep. Honestly, it sounds kind of nice. It does sound kind of nice. It'd be a fun podcast episode. Put us both in trances and actually, no, that's that's a terrible idea. They would get some. That's... They'd get some content. No, <laughs> I rescind that idea. <laughs> so, again, it gets pretty scary of how how much they start to match up. Both individuals claim that they witnessed and heard the figures communicating to each other via hums. Oh. So that was that was one big similarity. Additionally, they both claim that the figures took their hair, skin, nails, 
and that a six-inch needle was inserted into Betty's stomach. Oh. Yeah. So like a quick, quick little shot to the stomach, but... Um, Do we know whether that was an insertion of something, or were they taking something out? She says that she felt something go in, and the needle was out before she knew it. Wow. But she felt an insertion. Um, it was only to Betty. It wasn't to Barney. Mm. So, and then during Betty's hypnosis, she told Dr. Simon that she and Barney spoke with the leader of the creature. So they had like this telepathic conversation. The leader asked Betty how much she knew about the universe. The figure then got up and directed their attention to a map on the wall that Betty could only determine was like a star map. Basically like mm -hmm. a map of the universe, a map of stars and planets. The leader asked Betty to point to where she thought she was. She obviously just laughed and thought it was a joke because she said she has no idea. Yep. The leader then responded to her, she says in like a joking manner, if you don't know where you are, then it wouldn't be any point in me telling you where I am. Yeah. Yep. So that's kind of deep. The two continued their relationship with Dr. Simon over many more years mostly just to have, like, general therapy about the encounter that they had. Yeah. Um, they kept it mostly quiet for a few years. Betty went under hypnosis again in 1964. So the encounter was 1961. She went under again in 1964. During this session, Betty drew a star map with shocking accuracy to the perspective of someone standing on a planet that orbits a star called Zeta Reticuli. The star that's Zeta Reticuli is approximately 40 light years away from Earth, and she drew the stars of that system with perfect accuracy from memory. What? That's the end of the story. That, that can't be the end of the story. Okay, I have so many questions. I'm ready. Um, are there... Uh, recordings of these hypnosis sessions i don't think so not that we know of anyway not in any of the sites that i went to was the psychologist or psychiatrist part of project blue book no 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 okay because my was my a, conspiracy brain automatically yeah. goes to if there are recordings are they stored somewhere right um, he was a contact through NICAP, which right. doesn't necessarily mean your conspiracy thinking is wrong. Yeah. Because keep in mind, the, the same type of people that would yeah. be on Project Blue Book are, um, have maybe retired and then joined something like NICAP. It's yeah. very plausible. Okay. I might do a little more digging to see if that's a thing, because I think that is so fascinating. Anytime you can watch something like this, like a recording of it, Super interesting. Um, okay, second question. You might wonder how, it, how this information ever became public. Well, yes, and that was going to be my next question, is like you said, there's like movies, and there's obviously... Mm -hmm. I, I've heard this story. I, I didn't remember the details, but I've heard podcasts and shows and things like this. It was sometime later, but... Barney and Betty choose, so for a long time they keep it secret, but they choose at some point basically to go to this committee and 
they felt like they were sort of like coming out about their story. Mm-hmm. It was a civilian committee that hears stories like this, kind of like NICAP. They don't really do any investigation, but it was honestly just picture like a hearing where they get a chance to tell their story and be heard. The caveat is there were not supposed to be any recordings or reporters mm. from this because they weren't the only ones talking. There was a group of other people that would come with their own stories. So Barney and Betty actually said that this hearing was a very positive experience for them because the feedback they got and the validation from the audience was very positive and mm. made them feel like all these years we thought we were going to be seen as crazy and they were not. Yeah. But then the twist of it is, is there was a reporter then that writes their story sort of against their requests and against their, they were, they were told they were not going to be put on the record for anything or named. And uh, all of that was not true. Okay. Um, so I think this, I think it's interesting that this happened in the sixties. You and I think have talked about the congressional hearings that have been happening over the last few years. You would definitely know more about them than I would, but yeah. <laughs> this is like highlight of my life so far. Um, so I forget what year it was a few years ago the government declassified tens of thousands of reports of UFOs and very similar project. I on it, like I know this stuff is still going on in the government and, and for good reason, UFOs are inherently a national security risk. And so they, you know, the air force in particular keeps, keeps a pretty close watch on this. That was the original purpose of project blue book is yeah. They were supposed to determine if this was a threat to national security. Yeah. And, and, you know, UFOs are often either, you know, they can be weather balloons, they can just be aircraft that, you know, for some reason are unregistered, things like that. Um, and so when I, when I say UFO, I don't necessarily mean like aliens from another planet. Mm-hmm. But so they declassified, you know, tens of thousands of reports because, I mean, you today can still go in and report to whether it's the Air Force or, you know, another, another branch of the military a ufo sighting and so you can report it into this database and they they take that they collect that and they look into it because again sort of national security issue so they declassified sort of decades of reports and part of this hearing that they had which was a very new thing because the government is very hush hush about this kind of stuff I, i mean to avoid sort of the public frenzy of you know ufos and aliens and it's like very sci-fi original yeah. fundamental question of like is humanity ready for this information yet yeah but it's interesting because they brought active and retired military folks who were either involved in the investigations or involved in the actual reports themselves this is what i wanted to ask you about so i'm glad you're yeah. i'm glad you're bringing it up Be- because you know most most i would say most of these reports are actually from pilots or people working within the military of they see something that they can't explain. It's actually yep. like their responsibility to report this. Mm-hmm. So they had a number of people speak, and the vast majority of these cases are, you know, considered solved or, or explained. And there are a number that could not be explained through our intelligence as a government and things like that. And so they talked about some of these where they either showed video or photographs or something, and they had these sort of experts talking about, you know, what they see, what they think it could be, but ultimately could not come up with conclusions. And I I think that's really interesting to have kind of the smartest people who have spent their entire careers, you know, doing this type of thing saying, I have no explanation for this. You know, it's not, 
a technology issue. It's not, you know, just like an aircraft that we can't, you know, it's, it's baffling to them. And so there's, there's a handful of these that in the declassified documents have not been explained. And I think that is super interesting. That specifically is the one I wanted to ask you about, because I I haven't looked into this as much as you have, but the one interview I do remember was the retired Air Force pilot Mm -hmm. who says, I think I just remember the one sentence where he says, I have seen almost every type of aircraft that you can Mm -hmm. fly throughout my career, and there's just a handful of things that I will never be able to explain. Yeah. Yeah, it's super interesting. The the part that, you know, gets me excited is they did – I want to say they've done three of them now, three different hearings on these sort of phenomena that haven't been explained. But after each of these, there is a closed door session. I would, I would give up everything in my life to just be able to witness that. Yeah. And I understand part of it is going to be like, they talk about issues of national security that they cannot broadcast mm-hmm. live. But I also think the real juicy stuff they're not going to put out in the public. And I just wrote down a note earlier. I forget where I heard this question, whether it was a podcast or an interview, but somebody said, do you think it's a scarier concept that there are other people or other beings in the universe or that we're the only ones? That is a great question. Okay. What do you think about it? I think it's terrifying if we're the only ones. I completely agree. There's no, there's no possible way. I think if, I, if yeah. we are the only ones, thinking of it, one, rationally, what are the actual odds? And then two, philosophically, how lonely. Like, it's just so us. So lonely. Yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy. And the, I, I, I think, you know, I am very secular. I'm not religious. So kind of take that aspect out of it. I think there are a lot of people through religion who believe, like, we are created by some higher power and and that is the explanation for how we're the only ones i am not religious and i don't that that's not my belief system i think it is highly improbable Mm -hmm. that we're the only entities whatever that may look like in this universe even just on the only life-sustaining planet type of thing two things so i liked that in betty's account she said that the leader asked her how much do you know about the universe? Yeah. If we, so like thinking just as a hypothetical, if we came across another being or life force, I feel like that's a question that we would ask. How much do you yeah. know about the universe? Like, do you know where we came from and like what we yeah. had to do to get here? I feel like that's such a deep, like philosophical, thoughtful question that there, this potential alien asked her. Yeah. And I think that's so cool. The other point is, Back to the like congressional hearings, I would say I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Like I, I think that getting wrapped up in them just leads to hypothesizing too much. So I would say I'm not a conspiracy theorist. They're fun, but I, the ten thousand or so accounts and records that they have declassified, those are real. Mm-hmm. Like those are actual reports and documents. And then the fact that they have to have any type of secret hearing about it after the public part is so telling. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can I don't think you can spin it any other way than when these documents are declassified that there still needs to be secret conversations about them that there's something in them. Yeah. There's at least something in them. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I 
I think it's super interesting. I think it frankly scares the shit out of a lot of people to think that there's other entities out there. And I think that's fair, but, you know, it could be any end of the spectrum. It could be, you know, microorganisms that are just, you know, floating around in a pool of water. I prefer to think they're just starting out. <laughs> they could be starting out, or it could be a version of us a million years in the future. And, like, we would not even recognize yeah. it. And I, I don't think that's scary. I think it's actually more comforting to know that we're not the only beings existing in this vast swath of seemingly nothingness. I think not believing in aliens is not only lonely, but it's also no fun. No, and like, I, I, um, I know I what you're a, gonna, I know what you're gonna bring up. <laughs> I had a boss recently yeah. who is adamantly, um, d- d- aggressively anti-alien or anti-other life in the universe. And it baffled me because he was a he was a physics major in college and and objectively a very smart person, but he thought it was all nonsense and I I couldn't fathom how such a smart science minded person could actually think that. And one of his arguments was, if there's other life out there, how is it how is it possible that we haven't seen them, interacted with them, you know, whatever? And and I tried to explain and again like. He tried to go very deep into, you know, physics concepts and, you know, A, like, I have been educated in physics. Thank you for not acknowledging that. (laughs) But B, you have to consider, like, the conscious human experience and our ability to conceptualize aliens is a tiny blip Mm -hmm. in history. We are just a fragment of a fragment of a fragment of time in the expanse of the universe. And so the fact that you think we're so special that somebody would have been able to already interact with us during this time, and the concept that somebody, let's say 40 million light years away, would have happened to go by our planet, and while they're going by, say, you know, it sounds like a really good idea. We should stop in and say hi. It's an incredibly human thought to have. It's incredibly human. But it's so arrogant yep. to think that in our tiny blip of existence, of consciousness, of having these thoughts, that it would also happen that they stop by and say hi. And yep. like, it's so irrational to think that way. I think the point you're making is the only point that I would make. Because then it turns into a probability. Like if you actually take the amount of time that we've been around in terms of, or in comparison to the age of the universe, Take that probability and then just the raw numbers. I think that explains why we haven't had any interactions yet. Or maybe we have and they're just Mm -hmm. still secret. Well, but also we may not even know. If a technology or a a civilization is so far advanced that let's say they're, they're on their home planet or wherever they may reside, they may communicate with us in ways that we aren't Mm. even able to perceive. That's a good point. You know, we've been sending out like radio signals into the universe for, yep. for decades. Yeah, we've, we've sent like multiple probes to just go float out forever. Yeah, but it's so silly for us to think that like who, whoever, whatever is out there can understand what we're trying to say or do. You know, there might be another, let's say there's another human civilization somewhere and they see our probe fly by 
and they're on high alert and they're like, well, we got to, you know, shoot this thing down or whatever. Like, there's no reason why they would see our probe and say, oh, look, it's a friendly civilization trying to say hi to us. Yeah. We have, I mean, we've been probing the universe for a long time. I think of just like the uh, manned mission to the moon. We yeah. left behind a plaque that said men from the planet Earth landed here. And that's a sliver of distance away from where we would think anyone else would be. And it's just yeah. right next door on the moon. And we, we even left the probe there to say, if anyone ever came across it, it would say men from the planet Earth. Yeah, and, and we're here thinking like, oh, they can read English or whatever language it's in. But, you know, you say that we're probing the universe. We're, we're not. We're essentially like, if the universe is our neighborhood, we're moving from the living room to the kitchen and hoping that somebody five blocks down the road understands what we're doing and our movements inside of our own house. Like, it's like so, that. the perspective is just so off. I like that. And I, I think that your boss's perspective is so uh, frustratingly uh, typical. And then it's like, it's easy to say, like, that's such a human thought. We are just so human centric. All of our movies are only like what we imagine aliens to be. Mm -hmm. I like your point about like, they might be interacting and communicating with us in ways we don't even understand yet. I just think it's at the bottom line, it's no fun to think that none of this is possible. We come up with technology all the time that 10 years ago was impossible. Mm -hmm. So I think it's no fun and it's just so closed minded. Having a little bit of imagination and there's so much more that's possible. Well, and and I think coming from strictly a science perspective, you know, I, we've talked about, I was a biology major. Some of what I did was thinking about exobiology. So biology that exists outside of the earth. And you think about all the research that's being done, whether it's on the moon or on Mars, looking at these environments that could potentially sustain life in the way that we view life. So carbon-based organisms. Mm-hmm. I am open-minded to the fact that life could exist in a totally different form than we know of, but we're also seeing evidence on Mars that the building blocks of life are either there or have the potential to be there. And that's enough for me to think, why wouldn't that turn into something? You read uh, Project Hail Mary, right? Yeah. Oh, I loved that book. <laughs> Good one. His friend Rocky. Mm-hmm. Getting back to the question of whether it's scarier to be alone or not, I think the concept of us being alone in this universe is terrifying. Because then also, what next? Yeah. Sure, our, civil- our civilization will like go on until it doesn't, but then what next? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could literally talk about this all day. <laughs> and I, I, I remember the context. I was uh, in a, oh, this like awful concrete walled boardroom talking to my boss about this because one of the hearings had just happened. This was over the summer. And he thought I was ridiculous, like a highly educated person thinking that any of this could be real. And I thought he was ridiculous that, a highly educated person didn't think any of this was real. And so it was, it was just interesting, just like this butting of heads. Cause I wasn't, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not open-minded to the thought that you can not think any of this is possible, but that's my own bias. So. What a funny thing to disagree on in terms of like principles. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think, it, I think it's, 
speaks to larger issues, though, of empathy and understanding of people's differences. You know, because my first reaction is like, why would we think that we can communicate yeah. with another life form? Well, I like the part about, to like, why do we think that they would want to come? Yeah. <laughs> what if we are just so insignificant that they just pass on over us? I'm not going to lie. Knowing what I know today, if I was flying by Earth and I looked down with some binoculars, I'd be like, no, I'm actually going to pass this day. <laughs> Especially if you got choices. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to look for another civilization that seems like they got their shit together. <laughs> this, one's a, this one's a blink of an eye. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, thank you for that story. I had heard it before, but I didn't remember the context until I loved, a lot. I loved looking it up and, and researching it. I think great. abduction stories are so interesting. Again, like, I... I don't believe or not believe. I'm open-minded to the fact that there are other beings out there. I do think the likelihood or probability of them actually interacting with us seems very low, but I also see sort of the the amount of time and effort and money that the government puts into this kind of work, and that legitimizes it yep. to some level. Um, the fact that they are classified, yeah. I mean, there's a reason for it. And it's also, like, very interesting. You know, we talk about being very human-centric. Let's think about being very American-centric. Yep. I'm only thinking about the American government's work in this. You know, we're, we're a fraction, like, you know, the other countries in the world are doing the same exact work. But for national security purposes, we'll never, we'll never see that. I think I just saw it. U.S. military just got a, their spending budget approved for 880 billion dollars that's hard to fathom but hey at least i know some of it's going to aliens <laughs> at least at least a little bit yeah i uh the rest of it's the rest of it's going overboard uh from okay from we, the, we the need s- to, we need to talk about this <laughs> go for it i recently learned uh, I'm shocked that this was a <laughs> an epiphany to you. <laughs> the, the amount that I've learned about submarines from you is uh, pretty wild. Um, I don't even remember how this came up in conversation. <laughs> I don't think it matters. I don't either, but I don't think it matters. Yeah, no, we were, I don't know, we were talking about submarines or something, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I asked how long you're underway for on your deployments, and you said something like, you know, three, let's say three to four months. and my. The first thing. Oh, you asked how long the entire deployment was. Yeah. That's what it was. And and it was six or seven. Yeah. And my question was what happens with all of the solid waste produced? She was asking about all the poop. (laughs) All the poop. What happens to all the shit? So, my. Granted, this is not something I really ever thought in depth about before. Uh, Apparently. In depth. Nice. Um, Thank you. But, you know, my gut instinct was like, oh, it gets stored on board. And then when you land somewhere, pull up some, whatever the term is, you like go to some naval sewage treatment yeah, facility. You, you pull into the shit station. <laughs> that was my perception was like, you'd store it on board and then you, you take care of it later. And um, it turns out. You just throw it overboard. It just gets pumped out. That's I would also horrifying. Like to, I would also like to point out there would be a serious problem <laughs> if you do pull in and you go to get 
rid of all of this at a certain facility, and they are just too full of shit <laughs> to take any more shit. I'm just Sorry, horrified. I'm horrified. Yeah, no, it all gets pumped overboard. It goes into the ocean. But, like, consider how many ships are out in the ocean, and, yeah. like, every ship is just yep. pouring their shit overboard. Tell me your response when I said, <laughs> I asked her, okay, what do you think, like, whales and, like, fish? That's their home. That, that, they're, they're justified to do it there. God, that's probably way more than... No, absolutely oh, not. Absolutely not. I would like numbers on this. This is now interesting. Well, then I need numbers on how many submarines we have in the ocean <laughs> and how many cruise liners and things like that. Oh, I bet the, the amount of whale shit in the ocean is way more. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's. She was horrified. I still am horrified that that it goes overboard. I'm like, what do you think we do with it on board? That's seven months worth of human waste. <laughs> well, then, like, why can't you have some kind of processing unit on board? Um, space is not a free commodity on a submarine. There's, there's, there was, sorry, there's no room to put anything like that. I don't even know what that looks like. Like, how do you, what do you, how do you make shit not shit? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That was hilarious. That was, it was a, like, 15 minute conversation of Riley realizing just this horror that Well, you started, ships... it started with the whales, and now you're telling me we would just throw our shit overboard? That's horrible. Um. In, in general, <laughs> humans are not good to the ocean. Oh, I know. I know. It doesn't make it better. No, it's not a justification, <laughs> but, like, that is the way it goes. Oh, I don't... I cannot think of an alternative. I can. And I already told you I'm going to write to the Navy. Oh, yes. Now that I know you can just contact the government freely and make things happen, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to reach out to the Navy. I'm going to propose that they invest some of their $800 billion uh, into a poop compactor if for you could, submarines. If you could use my name when you do that, that's great. <laughs> Can do. Would you say a poop compactor? <laughs> Are they going to make little, like... A poop actor. Yeah, like little, like, poop cube that gets all compressed and everything. Well, what if you turn it into, like, fertilizer? <laughs> like little, um... Oh, what do you call them? Pellets. <laughs> you can turn it into weapons. What? <laughs> you have a, a poop shoot? You have a fart gun or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it can be used to fuel the submarine. I thought weapons of mass destruction were outlawed a while ago. <laughs> oh. Okay. I forgot that we had that conversation. I did not. I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> Does it keep you up at night? Yeah. <laughs> it just reminds me, this is off. It's sort of off topic. Um, I don't even know the relation. I think it was a... Oh, boy. I'm yeah. still picturing a poop compact. <laughs> like, what if you overfilled it? <laughs> I don't know. I'll workshop it. Over capacity on poop. I can't Uh, stop thinking of being full of shit. (laughs) That's all I think of. 
I forget, gosh, who was it? Uh, um, let's say a friend of a friend of a friend, because I don't remember the connection. Okay. Somebody out in California who was at Berkeley for college really wanted to work, I think, for NASA and applied. And NASA was like, no, you got to like, you know, you haven't done enough, whatever. This guy took it upon himself. He was an engineering student. He designed, I want to say it was like a microwave, maybe. No, no, I remember what it was. It was a um, washing machine that would work in space. Okay. So he did this just as like a side project as an engineer because they could never, I, I might be getting details wrong, but my understanding is they couldn't figure out how to do laundry in space because there's no mm -hmm. gravity. And so he designed a washing machine that works without gravity in space. And then he got hired by NASA. <laughs> they were like, yeah, okay. We, yeah, that sounds pretty good. You passed your interview. Yeah. I don't remember how that's connected to, oh, because maybe I should call upon him to design the poop compactor. This is my retirement plan. Oh, great. The poop compactor 5,000. <laughs> oh, goodness. What do you think astronauts do with their waste? Don't even tell me. What do you, what do you don't think? Don't even tell me. What do you think they do? It gets compacted. Maybe. Probably gets vacuum sealed. Then yep. what? You save it. Did you put it in the cabinet? <laughs> yeah. God, no. Also, okay, here's where my brain goes. <laughs> okay, I just want to clarify first. You know that gets put out into space, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me there's just a load of shit in orbit? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what? Why would they keep that on board? Okay, I, I have a legitimate reason. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. One, so that there's not a, a shit ton of shit flying around in orbit. Two, I bet they at least save some of it to do research on to see how your poop changes when you're in space. I could see the, the research aspect because people do spend an extended period of time yeah. in space and they, they do want to do... Um, do. They do do want to do <laughs> nice research and just find out how that affects you. Actually, now that you bring it up, the other thing that I did hear in the news not too long ago was, have you seen The Martian? Yes. Matt Damon? Yeah. How he fertilizes the plants and everything with his own feces. Mm -hmm. I guess the, the crew's feces. But they determined that it would not be enough to just use human waste. They would still need like some type of microbes and bacteria to be incorporated and that just like human waste is not enough so they actually did the study to find out if you could grow and fertilize plants in somewhere like mars or in space just using that as the nutrients and yeah. they still you still needed microbes and bacteria to break yeah. down and do those processes that other compounds cannot yeah. so i thought that was really interesting so i don't think you're entirely wrong that maybe some of it is kept but a lot of it it goes no, into space i i'm just not going to believe it Okay. You're... I think we have a poop problem in this country. So we should all just stop? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I, I did actually have a question for today, which is completely unrelated to anything that we've talked about. If you were in jail and you had to choose your last meal, Ooh. what would it be? Okay. I want an appetizer. Okay. 
an entree, a dessert, and a beverage. I like this. They can be any of each of those categories? Mm -hmm. Okay. They don't have to go well together. This, the, is, this is your final meal. Okay, well, my, my meal does go well together because it's a, it was like a very favorite meal that I've been wanting for a while. I kind of recreated it. I kind of like ordered it again, but I really, really like carne asada. Mm. And there was a place that, I don't even know if they did it well, but they did it how I liked in South Carolina. So that was years ago, and I haven't had it like that ever since. But I would say that appetizer then is like chips and guac mm -hmm. or like chips and queso. Then the, the meal is this grilled steak with peppers and onions and warm tortillas. Mm. Dessert, though, is probably either red velvet cake or carrot cake with cream cheese frosting. And the drink... Ooh, okay, can I choose two just in case? Sure. It would either be a a, a really good margarita to go with the Mexican food, yeah. or um, let's see, there's a beer I really liked from California called Eight O Five, so I probably have an Eight O Five. Nice. Those are mine. Okay, mine are probably gonna make complete sense. So my appetizer is gonna be arancini. Arancini. It's like an Italian cheesy rice ball that's been deep fried. They're incredible. Entree is gonna be lasagna. Are you are you picking something that will kill you? Because it's like your last meal. Right? Yes. This for those who don't know, I am basically allergic to dairy. So this might actually kill me before I'm able to be killed in prison. That might be the way to go. Yeah. I mean, I would certainly die happy. So we're going to start with the arancini. We're going to go to lasagna. Okay. I want it to be my mom's homemade lasagna because it's the best. Dessert. I, I actually want a side option, too, because this is my meal. I want garlic bread. Like the just oiliest, yep. crunchiest. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Oh, boy. Dessert. I want... Like a very dense chocolate cake. We could have like three layers. Chocolate frosting. Cho oh, boy. Drink. Specifically thinking about this drink at a restaurant in my hometown. And I forget what they called it. But it was essentially just champagne and elderflower. There might have been a little bit of gin in it, like served in a flute. Oh my gosh, it was it's so good. And then I'd die happy. So not fondue? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay, well now I'm hungry. Same. I can't eat anything that I don't no. <laughs> It sounds great. I know, it sounds amazing. You're just torturing yourself. I know. Well, well, you've said that like dairy-free lasagnas are just oh, really sad. It's right? so sad. And it's so expensive. There's a recipe I found a few years ago. The, the issue with it is that non-dairy cheese is so bad. And in order to get something that has a halfway decent texture or meltability, you need to pay so much. Mm. So like 
you know, you can buy the lasagna noodles. Those are fine. You know, whatever red sauce is usually fine. But then you need to get dairy-free ricotta, which tastes like ass. (laughs) You need dairy-free mozzarella ball, which I found one that's really good. It's made of cashew cheese, but I, it's like $15 for mm. all of it. And then you need to find shredded mozzarella that actually melts correctly, which is a problem. And that's probably $8 a bag. You need two of those bags. And then you need Parmesan for the top. Mm-hmm. and non-dairy parmesan is going to be another you know whatever the last time i made this it was like a 40 dollar lasagna Jesus. <laughs> it, was, it did not taste like lasagna it tasted like fake cheese i'm picturing like a plasticky taste yeah it's not good that's one of those foods where if i've just done like a major race or for whatever reason know that i'm gonna feel like absolute shit like that day or the next day I will just eat a piece of lasagna and suffer the consequences. Like, I'm not going to die, most likely. (laughs) I don't think. (laughs) That hasn't happened yet. I will just be in a state of unwell (laughs) for a while. So, anyway, that's that's my final meal. The last supper, you might say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now I'm hungry. Yeah. I think I need some lunch. Um, okay, well, I think that's all we got today. Your turn for a story next week. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Well, what topics do we, we... So we've done survival story. That's what we started with. Yep. We did... Haunting. Haunting. I did a uh, mystery death story. You've now done aliens. I see the wheels turning. What about, like, a... This could be... What about like a possession story? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Good luck. Same time next week? Same time next week.